You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 90. to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guest on the show is Claire Perry from the Environmental Investigation Agency, which we'll be referring to as EIA throughout this episode. Claire has been working for EIA for 17 years, and she is the director of the group's Oceans Campaign. We became aware of Claire's work with EIA through our film project on the Vaquita, Souls of the Vermilion Sea. The issues surrounding the conservation of the Vaquita and the Tatuaba are a central focus of Claire's work, and we are extremely grateful for the uh, important investigative research that Claire and her team have done on the demand for the Tatuaba swim bladder in southern China. We were extremely happy to collaborate with EIA on a new short video that they just released about the Vaquita Tatuaba issue called Collateral Damage. You can watch that video over on the show notes page for this episode, which you'll find at wildlensinc.org EOC90. Now, as you'll hear in today's interview, Claire is involved in a lot of different conservation issues through her work with EIA. It's not just Vaquita and Tatuaba. And this work has given her uh, a really important perspective on the extinction crisis faced by our planet. I honestly think that we all should be able to learn something from the way that Claire and her team at EIA approach a conservation threat. Let's jump in. My name is Claire Perry, and um, I work at the Environmental Investigation Agency as the uh, leader of the Oceans Campaign. And I've been carrying out this role for probably about 10 years now, and I've been working uh, for EIA for, well, around 17, 18 years. So I spent a lot of time there. I've worked also on climate change, and I've worked in the past on some of our other campaigns, like uh, our Elephant Ivory campaign. Let's start big picture. What is the Environmental Investigation Agency? What, you know, what kind of work is this organization uh, involved with? What's sort of the big picture mission and vision here? Well, we're a small organization that carries out an enormous kind of breadth of work. Um, I mean, basically, we're an independent campaigning organization uh, with offices in London and in Washington, D.C. And we are basically uh, committed to bringing about change that protects the natural world from environmental crime and abuse and this a lot of our work has focused um, on the illegal trade of wildlife um, and timber products but our campaigns are actually a lot broader than that and we are now looking at you know big big issues like um, marine pollution and, and climate change. How did you get involved with the Environmental Investigation Agency? Maybe you can sort of track your interest in, in, in this type of work yeah, I mean, well, I wanted to be, um, I wanted to work on marine issues since I was a kid. I grew up by the sea. I love the sea, and I, I always wanted to work on ocean issues. And eventually, I did a, I did a biology degree, and then I, I did a master's in coastal zone management. 
And then I kind of wandered around for a few years traveling, trying to figure out what I could do, doing voluntary work in nature, you know, marine nature reserves um, and some consultancy work in, in the ports. So I looked at the kind of science side and the management side and, and eventually I kind of came to this conclusion that I wanted to be somewhere in the middle balancing, um, you know, look at, looking at all these things and actually protecting the natural world as opposed to, to doing the, the pure science. Um, and eventually I had, a, I had an opportunity to work with EIA. I started out um, in a voluntary post uh, writing a scientific paper on the impact of noise pollution on cetaceans, on, on whales and dolphins and porpoises. And that eventually led to, to me getting a full-time job there and, and working as a campaigner in the cetacean campaign. Um, and so over time, that cetacean campaign has broadened massively into a, to an oceans campaign, which I now, I, I now lead. Once you become aware of a, a threat to a wildlife species or an ecosystem that you've decided you want to take on as an organization, what's sort of the first step and, and, and where do you go from there? That's a difficult question. I think it depends on, um, you know, where the issue is because sometimes we, and, and very often in fact, we, we, we do work on new emerging issues that other, other groups haven't worked on. Um, but sometimes we also sort of join into to, to looking at a niche aspect of a, a broader issue, for example, climate change that obviously has very well established um, patterns of work and a lot of a lot of things have already been done. But I think with the wildlife trade, I mean, we usually start we have a very um, pragmatic and a very scientific approach in EIA. Uh, we do a lot of desk based research um, to understand what we know about the species we're trying to protect, about about the actual trade. We do a lot of sort of number crunching, looking at international trade data, looking at the import and export countries. Uh, so we, we, we do a huge amount of scoping out of the issue, um, talking to anyone and everyone that, you know, works on it, from from people involved in the trade to, to scientists to um, corporates. Um, so before we actually you know, get out to the field. We ha- we do a lot of that kind of work. Um, and then it really depends on the issue at hand because because some of these issues you can go straight to kind of a advocacy approach and it's a question of approaching governments and finding, you know, the pressure points there to, to effect a change. But in the case of the illegal wildlife trade, um, for example, or, or, or other illegal trade where you already have legislation in place and that is that is not being enforced, we, we quite often um, carry out field investigations. Um, sometimes, for example, with commodities like um, chemicals, we've done uh, investigations into the illegal trade of ozone-depleting substances and there we would maybe set up a fake email with a, or a fake company and, and do some sort of initial testings to to suppliers in in normally in china see if they're willing to supply um any the the ozone depleting substances that we know are are illegal for example to bring to europe um and then we use those initial kind of that initial outreach to 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 get as a kind of target for a field investigation you're actually trying to solicit this company and trying to get them to sell these illegal ozone depleting chemicals to you to prove that that's something that they're doing right which is something that i, I guess sets the it's organization step- apart from other conservation groups 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're not the only organizations doing those those kind of exposes. And, you know, and I should be point out that we never buy any illegal products in these investigations. What we're setting out to do is normally um, to get documentation of, of traders offering to sell them to, to prove that it's happening. Um, because often a first point of call is that, you know, the, there is legislation in place, the government of that particular country, their understanding is that it's it's being enforced and people are obeying the law. Um, and you may have your suspicions, but if you don't have, you know, to have some video evidence, it's obviously, it, it, it's much more effective and it's much quicker to get um, governments to take notice. And if the governments are unwilling to take notice, um, that kind of evidence is, is very appealing to the media. And that's, you know, another route um, to getting the government to take notice. But I think we, you know, we we don't have a one size fits all. And I think it's one of the, the reasons we are successful. And, you know, for a small organization, it's, you know, it's, it's often said that, that we punch above our weight. And I think that's because we, we don't put ourselves in a box. It's become a bit of a trademark, our illegal, you know, trade investigations or the investigative techniques. But at the end of the day, we want to bring about change and we will do it the most cost effective, the most, you know, efficient, uh, right um, way to do it and the quickest way we can do it. And sometimes, honestly, it's as simple as writing a letter. And another time it will take 10 years of field investigations, you know, before you can even get your foot in the door. So, you know, it really depends on the issue. So maybe there are a couple of particular issues or campaigns that you could point to as an example maybe um of a success story yeah i mean well i think we we've had you know a huge number of successes over the years and and sometimes it's quite hard to sort of obviously you can't often delineate necessarily you know eia did this because we work very very much um in partnership with other ngos particularly we often have partners on the ground um you know, if we're working in Southeast Asia, we nearly always work with partners on the ground. So, so you know, it's not just an EIA success, but I think, I mean, a couple that there's a couple that spring to mind. Um, a few years back, we we did some investigations into um, the illegal logging in Papua, and you know, when we initially went there, we actually there was a forest community that came to us to show us, um, you know, where they were illegally logging. Um, and so we, we did some investigations that, you know, because their livelihoods, their whole way of life was being threatened, um, by this logging. And so we did some investigations and we, I mean, this is cutting a very long story short, but we, we exposed this illegal logging, um, at a press conference and, you know, basically it stopped, you know, it was stopped in, in, in a really swift way. And the Indonesian government, you know, crack, took action and cracked down. And and those forests were saved um, for those people. Um, so that was a, that was a really an amazing uh, achievement. And more recently, I mean, one of the most difficult issues we work on is um, the ivory trade, which is you know got it's, it's one of those outstandingly long campaigns. You know that we thought we'd won back in 1989 when the CITES um, listed elephants on Appendix One and they banned international trade and. Um, it was one of the things, that, one of our campaigns that we were first involved in in EIA. Um, but obviously that trade has continued um, 
and there's been a horrible, um, you know, increased slaughter of elephants in recent years. Um, it's an absolute crisis. Um, but a couple of years ago, we, I mean, we've done investigations in Tanzania, um, looking at the elephant poaching there and the, the trade of ivory going to China. And um, a few years ago, the, the elephant team, you know, put together the most amazing report, which basically was 10 years of investigations and information and research and um, you know, it was really the seminal report on, on the issue. Uh, and it had a huge impact in the media straight away with the Chinese government. And now, I mean, it's still a crisis situation for elephants, but China has indicated that it will close its domestic markets for ivory, which is the main problem. And I think, you know, that that is a, a massive achievement that has come out of, of, of that work and, and, of course, work of other NGOs. Obviously, the ivory issue is something that you're probably still working on actively. Um, but I, I'm, I'm wondering what else. I'm trying to get a sense of like the scope of, you know, sort of the number of issues that you're working to address at any given point in time. Um, I mean, what is driving your passion for this work uh, at, at this point in time? Actually, it's not always. It's not something that would be necessarily species specific. It's how effectively we do our work. So. You know, I work on um, climate change as well, and we're actually involved in, in in something really quite amazing that should be happening later this year. Uh, we've been working on this area of climate change, which, which is kind of a niche issue, but basically the use of greenhouse gases in air conditioning and refrigeration. Um, and for eight years now, uh, we've been trying to get the Montreal Protocol, which is the ozone treaty, to take on these these um, HFCs, which are these greenhouse gases that we use in our air conditioning, they're powerful greenhouse gases and they're growing massively in the use. They're the only real group of greenhouse gases that are actually increasing at the moment. Um, and they are replacement chemicals for the ozone depleting substances that we phased out, you know, to, 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 to allow the ozone hole to recover. So the Montreal Protocol kind of, you know, it's helped to, 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 to start the ozone hole on the path to recovery but it also um, has caused this other problem of HSC so we've been trying to get these chemicals into the Montreal Protocol Treaty um, through an amendment to that treaty and it looks like in October next year and this is something I've been working on a you know huge amount over the last few years um, and it looks like next month there's a meeting of the parties in Kigali in Rwanda um, where you know if things go according to plan the world's governments will agree to do this and it will be the first real sort of test of the Paris Climate Treaty, which was only at the end of last year. And it's, you know, so it's hugely much more important than just the HFC issue, issue itself. It's it's kind of a, a test of the commitment that, that we've all made that we are going to address climate change. And of course, how ambitious this deal is that we get on HFCs is incre incredibly important for that. Um, and it's just been a very effective um, and interesting challenging campaign because it's very very technical you know I'm not an engineer and I'm having to deal with kind of refrigeration cycles and get get my head around all these kind of new issues although I've been doing it a long time now but um, and but I think it's been a, a real textbook kind of effective campaign of, of strong coordination between a number of NGOs um, you know and step by step uh, to, to getting a huge, huge result, and that, and that's something that, you know, makes my job 
um, very easy to do in, in that sense. You know, I get up in the morning, I'm very keen to, to get to work. Um, on the more kind of emotional, maybe the more passionate side, you know, the, the ocean's work kind of is more sort of my thing there. Um, and, and, of course, the issue which is absolutely dominating um, my thoughts at the moment is, is the vaquita. Um, and that's, that's without question. This is the issue that connected us, um, since both of us are involved in these issues facing the, the vaquita and also the tatuaba. Um, how did you how did you first learn about this this issue? Well, I've known about the issue, um, you know, a long time. About I guess as long as it's 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 really been a, a, an issue that's been known. Um, I was in I was a member of the scientific committee of the International Whaling Commission, um, you know, for 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 some time, and certainly around the time when they were they set up the uh, committee for the recovery of the vaquita. So back in the days when they did the first assessments and they, you know, they thought there were, I can't remember even how many it was, you know, maybe 500 animals or, or maybe a bit more. But um, following the International Whaling Commission process all those years, and there is, there's, I think there's been one meeting I've missed in the last sort of 18 years. Um, I, I've basically been watching this, this decline of the species um, despite the excellent work that this group of scientists and many, many people have been doing. I've always known it's an issue and I've known the, the, the people, the scientists working very closely on it. So I, I've always monitored that issue and kept in touch. And in some small ways, you know, we've worked on it many times. We've always, EIA has always um, been at the kind of forefront of, of, of pushing the International Whaling Commission to look at the plight of small cetaceans in general, because, you know, they weren't protected by the whaling ban. And um, there's 80-odd species of these these uh, whales and dolphins and porpoises that generally have no protection and are being hit by, you know, pollution and bycatch and climate change and whatever. Um, and so we, we've done a lot of um, work in the IWC to try and to bring that issue into the organisation, which, of course, some countries didn't want to happen because they're hunting small cetaceans and they knew that was going to be a problem. So in that respect, you know, I've been monitoring the Vaquita um, story and, and very much following it, but it wasn't until 2014 when the, the Silver report came out that demonstrated the, the shocking sort of sudden decline of the population when we, we thought that we had, you know, managed to slow that decline um, and the fact that it was attributed um, to this illegal fishing for Totoaba. At that point... You know, I thought EIA has to do something because we're really definitely the right organization to, to look into this. This is clearly an issue where there's lots of other organizations doing good work. Um, how do you sort of find the right role for EIA to play to have the greatest impact on the outcome of the issue? Well, in this case, it was, I mean, it was rather easy, to be honest, because when when I saw what was happening, of course, I, I reached out to all the groups that I knew that were working on the issue you know, I know most of them already um, through our international policy work on Wales, um, but also got in touch with some of the groups, um, you know, working on the ground, um, talked to, you know, all the scientists that I know who are who have been working on this issue. And there wasn't really anyone looking at the, the China side. You know, they're looking at the illegal fishing, but nobody was actually looking at the demand um, for Totoaba that drives that illegal fishing. If there is no demand in China, there is not going to be any illegal fishing. 
and then there would be no bycatch. So, you know, it was very clear that this was a kind of, you know, there was some knowledge about what was going on. They knew they knew they were for the Chinese market, but but really that was pretty much it. So, so the first thing we did was, um, you know, we, we we got someone working in in Hong Kong to 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 do some sort of surveys, to do some research, um, and find out what we could find out about the fish more trade because this you know swim bladder the more trade in China is not something that we've we've ever worked on before, and it's and it's you know it's an issue that's not particularly um studied by ngos it's it's not there's not a lot of information even in the public domain um so we started looking at um what was available on the market in in hong kong and southern china and that was basically as soon as i you know got back from that iwc meeting in 2014 and managed to scrabble enough money to get someone to do it so that was early the following year and then we've now followed that up with um, two on-site investigations, which uh, we'll be, you know, launching a new report and, and film and stuff uh, about in in the near future. What has come out of these uh, investigations that you've done so far? I think we've 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 got a pretty good um, picture of, of the trade, at least in southern China and Hong Kong, and I think we know what's happened um, with this particular species with Totoaba. Um, I mean, fish more are consumed in Southeast Asia and primarily for their supposed medicinal benefits, sort of tonic benefits. But some some of the fish more are, you know, and there's many species, maybe, I don't know, 30 or so different species of fish that are commonly um, used as fish more. And croaker species like the totoaba are often the ones that are used in that kind of trade. Um, and some of them are extremely you know, extremely valuable. They they are they are deemed as as very precious. And one of those is is um, a croaker that that came from Chinese waters, which is thought to be almost extinct, called the bihaba. And this this um, fish is so valuable, uh, but but so incredibly rare. And and the two those two things tend to go hand in hand in this kind of um, traditional Chinese medicine. And so what's happened, because the Totoaba fish moor really does quite resemble the Bahaba moor, they, they've both got these tubules, and the difference is that the Totoaba moor's tubules are long and the Bahabas are short. So so they actually came to have the same name, and the, the name in Chinese actually literally um, translates to money fish. You know, they're so valuable, that's what they call them on the street. And so with the absence of Bahaba moors on the market, the Totoaba has become used as a replacement and, and and actually, you know, deliberately promoted by the traders as a replacement in order to, to make huge amounts of money, which they did. So the, the price of the Toto Abermore, um, you know, was very, very high, you know, promoting this demand. Um, and around six years ago, you know, that started to to, to impact on the, the trade Um the, the fishing in in the upper gulf of california i mean because these you know there's a long history of this trade back at you know at the beginning of the 20th century totowaba were killed for their swim bladders to sell to the chinese uh, markets so um it it's probably never completely died away but it suddenly exploded you know from 2010 2011 onwards to such an extent that um so many uh, total Abermores came to the Chinese market that the price then started to crash 
and everyone's saying, well, they're kind of cheap as chips now. So, you know, because because as I say, that the value uh, is so so linked to to, to the to rarity. So I think right now, but unfortunately, of course, in this this time, twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, there was just massive massive illegal fishing going on for Totoaba, and the Vaquita population has suffered catastrophically as a result of it. Um, and they're still, you know, even though the price has crashed um, in China, they're still valuable. You know, there's, <laughs> there's still maybe you could get for a very large total album or, um, you know, a very one in very good condition. You, you could still maybe um, sell it for as much as $50,000. It's just, you know, a swim bladder of one fish. So unfortunately, the, you know, the demand is still there and... We know the illegal fishing is still going on, or it certainly was in the last last spring. Um, and I think the key thing now for us is to 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 try and get China to to crack down on on what is probably quite a small group of traders. You know, it's it's a kind of quite a closed industry, and we think it's in a certain um, you know a fairly limited part of China. Um, it's not you know something that's across China. It's very much in in in. A, in, in one area of southern China, um, but there needs to be um, a lot of awareness raising, and there needs to be, you know, enforcement action by the Chinese government to actually to actually stop the trade there. Especially over the past, you know, five years or so, as a lot of these illegal wildlife trade issues have really become a lot more prominent. The mantra has sort of become, you know, stop the demand. If we can stop the demand, then that, that solves the problem, which is very logical. Um, if there's no demand for these products, then in the case of the vaquita and tatuaba, then folks won't be fishing illegally for tatuaba, and then the vaquita won't be harmed. And there has been substantial progress made uh, on that front through uh, a variety of outreach campaigns. There's been a lot of progress made on the ivory issue, which you pointed out, a lot of progress made on the, the shark finning um, issue as far as, you know, sort of working to shift the public perception towards the product, which in turn has an impact on the, the demand for that product. The Tatuaba issue is different because, like you said, it's such a select group of individuals that are purchasing these extraordinarily high-priced swim bladders. Is that something that is actually within our reach to end the demand for the uh, Tatuaba swim bladder? Well, I think it's... I mean, of course, it's it's always very, very difficult, if not impossible, to completely end that demand because there are always going to be people that want something just because they can't have it or because, it, you know, it's perceived to be so rare and valuable. Um, and actually, one of the interesting things about looking at this is that a lot of the buyers, particularly for the larger, more expensive Totoaba swim bladders, you know they're not they're not consuming these swim bladders. They're not using it for the medicinal purposes. They they are basically buying them as collectors or for investment purposes. You know it's it's kind of the, it was seen as a safe investment um, to buy these because they only only will um, you know generate value over time. And of course then the price crashed, um, and there's less willingness to to buy them in that right now. Um, unfortunately. You know, there's two issues because it's not just reducing the demand. There's also like ensuring that that that, it, that on the other side in the upper Gulf of California, the Mexican fishermen are actually aware that you know there isn't so much of a demand now. So so even though all the traders we spoke to um, most recently in June were saying 
you know, they have stockpiles, but because of the price drop, they don't really want to sell them. And they're certainly not, you know, asking for more. But despite that, we know the illegal fishing was going on. So there's a bit of a dis- disconnect between, as well, you know, between the demand side and the the illegal activity at the supply side. So there's two, issue, there's two issues to deal with. Um, but in this case, you know, I think we can do a lot with um, awareness because, of course, these these people are they're not evil people. These traders, they don't, I'm I'm sure on the whole they know that it's illegal, and they shouldn't be doing it. But I do not think um, there is much awareness of, of the you know the collateral damage that the fact that this is um, okay. The total Alba is uh, critically endangered. Listed as critically endangered, but you're also um, driving to extinction uh, a marine mammal species, and I don't think there is any awareness of that. Um, in the market um, so that's that's sort of the first step but it you know in in tune with the the government cracking down and I think given that there are many species of fish for and some which you know the traders quite openly say um, oh it's just as effective as totoaba but you can sell this totoaba for more because people think it's the king of the fish more um, but there are these other fish more that they can they can buy so that you know there is no reason to think that we couldn't you know, shift that market, hopefully to a species that will be fished sustainably, of course, um, because that that is another problem that um, every time one of these species becomes, you know, the, the desirable commodity, then then you get, you, you just encourage this illegal, illegal uh, fishing and usually with quite catastrophic results because they're large sort of long-lived uh, fish. I'm specifically interested in this disconnect that you pointed out between what's going on in China and what's going on um, in the upper Gulf of California and Mexico. The disconnect works both ways, right? I mean, the people in China that are involved in selling these tatuaba bladders probably have no idea about the collateral damage and what they're doing to the population of vaquita, to this unique marine mammal. Um, And at the same time, these fishermen in the upper Gulf who are participating in this illegal fishery for Tatuaba, um, they have no concept of what is going on as far as the demand for the product in China, right? I mean, they don't understand that, you know, the demand, that, that, that they've essentially flooded the market and that the price has dropped. Given this situation, I wanted to pose another question to you about sort of the intricacies of how this works and like potential solutions that folks have put forward. Um, because, you know, one of the things that we've found in um, the work that we've done in the Upper Gulf region is that, you know, essentially everybody in the Upper Gulf, all of the fishermen, all of the uh, local politicians, um, everybody who's has an interest in this issue, what's going on with the Tatuaba and Vaquita, um, essentially agrees that there should be a legal sustainable way to harvest tatuaba and sell the swim bladders legally to china i just kind of wanted to like throw that by you as far as you know from your perspective um having done you know investigative work on the china side like how feasible does that sound yeah i think this is a really um difficult question um because what we know is happening in china right now is yes the prices have are depressed that the demand is reduced to some extent but 
it, it wouldn't take much for, for there to be a, another surge in demand for illegal totoaba. And although the market seems to be quite small um, and localized at the moment, it, if commercial, you know, legal commercial trade of totoaba was opened up, then that market would obviously grow. And what we've seen with other uh, wildlife is that, you know, the, the scale of the market, the potential market in China is so huge um, that it is very difficult to control, you know, to, to avoid an impact on, on very, you know, uh, long-lived, slow-breeding species uh, like Totoaba. And, of course, the other issue is that the, the fish more are very valuable and um, the Totoaba is listed as critically endangered now. Um, I don't think there's been any uh, comprehensive um, survey of the population and so I don't think anyone really knows how many Totoaba they are and what state the population is in um, but one would assume given the past massive overhunting of Totoaba that took place overfishing um, the population is still pretty small and any resumption in commercial trade would be very limited quotas and at that point of course there is still a massive um there's a massive risk of illegal fishing with gill nets taking place because, you know, the market's there, you're perpetuating the market instead of wiping it out. Um, and there's always going to be incentive for people to go out and, and catch Totoaba illegally. Um, so given the situation with the vaquita and how critical it is, I think it's just something that's extremely premature to consider. Um, it might be something that could be possible when we know the vaquita population is stabilized and that you know it, it can you could take that risk but right now it would be a massive risk in my view um the only thing we can do um is make sure it is to enforce the bans and to make sure that there are no gill nets in, in the upper gulf Thank you for coming on to the show today and, and, and sharing this really important perspective that you have about endangered species issues and, and, and how the Environmental Investigation Agency you work for is working to address uh, all of these really important issues that, that our planet is facing right now. So thank you. All right. That was our conversation with Claire Perry from the Environmental Investigation Agency. Now, I know that I say this kind of thing a lot in reference to guests on this show, but I really do value Claire's perspective on conservation issues. One of the things that I've learned through producing this podcast series and talking to so many folks involved in the field of conservation is the diversity of approaches towards conservation threats all across the globe. There are just so many people out there working to address conservation issues in many different ways. But the example that Claire and the Environmental Investigation Agency presents to us is truly important. It's important because they have achieved success on numerous issues, and they are doing it with very limited resources. So the example of EIA clearly shows us how dramatic of an impact a small group of passionate people can have on the planet. Of course, not all conservation issues are created equal, and it remains difficult to envision a successful path forward for the vaquita. This does not mean that folks like Claire are giving up, however. Claire and her team at the EIA just released their most recent report on the status of the illegal market for Tatuaba swim bladders in southern China. You can view this report along with the new video that they produced in collaboration with us at Wild Lens over on the show notes page for this episode. 
Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC90. That's W-I-L-D-L-E-N-S-I-N-C dot org slash EOC90. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.